Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. Did you hit a spoon or something as you said that? No, but Brandon did in the kitchen. <laughs> the second we record, he starts clanking dishes around. <laughs> what else is new? That's what happens when we record on a Sunday. Welcome, everybody. Yeah, Sunday morning. The spouses are home. But can we can we talk about how we haven't actually made it to a Sunday all summer? No. Like, the, we have I've been... I've been blissfully in denial that we have failed so epically. <laughs> But yes, for anyone who doesn't know, we have consistently been recording and I have been editing all in one day because we have been so busy this summer. Yeah, which is not our usual MO. We like to record a few days before, give Katie some time with the audio, not have to jam pack it into one day. Um, So it's really feeling like back to school uh, and for us back to podcast reality reality yeah Yeah. um i will say though that recording like toot sweet and then editing you never forget to upload your audio i don't no because you have to give it to me like immediately correct because if i don't then well nothing's going up because i'm gonna leave so yeah we made it to a sunday and uh just i was just telling katie before we hit record that i'm i'm working on another case for a future episode and i Stole her province of Quebec. So stay tuned for that. I see how it is. Thief. (laughs) Um, Thief. We do have, I again was telling Katie, not a, I'm not even going to say a long episode. We just have a regular sized (laughs) episode for me today to get through, which is still a solid hour. So we won't be doing too much titty chattying, but uh, how's it going? What's new? You're moving soon. You have like five days till you move. Yeah, it's, as soon as we're done here, we are going to get boxes. Yeah. Like, it's, that's today's plan is just, I've been doing a lot of the, like, purging up until now. Yeah. Um, and, like, kind of packing as I go, but now we're in, like, moving mode. I love purging my things before I move. Oh, it's, like, yes. my favorite thing about moving is getting rid of shit. And I used to be such a pack rat in that I liked to keep every little thing if it had even the smallest amount of like sentimental value to me and now I'm like nope get rid of it I haven't worn it in a year get rid of it there's like I'll keep one or two things like me and you are very close to our dads for example so we like to like keep every morsel of anything they've ever given us and like but you have your tattoo now so I do you're right that is like a permanent like sentimental thing my dad the other day he gave me a sweatshirt that he used to wear when he was bodybuilding in the 80s. It's like this big oversized sweatshirt. So, of course, I was swooning over that and have worn it to the gym like every single day since. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, my God. Uh, when I have, I have like clothing of my grandpa's that like is just, I still, he gave it to me when he was alive and I loved it then. But now yeah. it is like the ultimate comfort clothing because I just know where it came from. Yeah. So anyway, I'll keep like certain things like that. But if it's like, oh, I loved this like belt, stud belt when I was 13, like it's going, it's gone. Yeah, I really have had this thing in my head. And obviously it's just something that's been in my head. But I'm like, who 
do I want, like, what look do I want and what routines do I want to have in the new house? Yeah. Because this is my chance to reset things. Well, so, I don't know about you. And I just you. need my day to day. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm in sort of a transitionary phase with my style, finally. Like, I have yeah. been able to keep the same pieces, like, the same few pairs of jeans, the same few pairs of shorts. We all have those, like, tops that yeah. we never get rid of. Like, I've been able to keep those and recycle them and wear them for years. And same. I feel like I'm finally in a phase where, like, I'm not ready to fully dress, like, an, a quote-unquote, like, adult per se if you know what I'm saying like but I am in sort of like a transitionary phase where my old clothes don't really match how I like feel anymore I agree I recently just bought a cute sorry the kittens finally broke into what they were trying to get so now it's gonna be really loud that's why I was laughing because they're just all running away with little sample bags of food they're like an assembly line of if you hear rustling going on at katie's house it's not mice it's kittens and it's my week this week so you won't have to hear too much of it but true but i will say i was gonna say about the clothing in the transition phase yes just before we went on our trip i had bought a pair of like boyfriend jeans on clearance somewhere just on a whim and ended up falling in love with them and then when i went on my trip i bought like two or three new pairs of jeans again like similar style because I have, like, these cute little, like, racer crop tops that I love. And with high-waisted jeans, they're not really crop tops. And Mm. I just feel like it's a look that I'm so comfortable in now. And it was just like, yeah, I feel like you're finally finding those things that you're like, I could wear this forever and this I would be happy with this being who I am. Yeah, I just feel like that part of me is changing a little bit, which is totally normal, totally fine. Um, But it just means that a lot of the stuff that was, like, my normal staples don't match how I feel anymore so anyway I'm also going through my stuff but I'm not moving um the moral of the story is I also I love purging uh getting but rid don't of throw stuff away and... your clothing people recycle them donate oh, yeah. them gift them to people go to swaps with friends yes. plan an event Thrift where you them. all bring your yeah like or like get five of your girlfriends together or friends of friends and all bring your clean used stuff I was gonna say unless they're like ripped and gross and old then just throw them out well, yeah, like it's, socks, it's okay. underwear, things like that. If they're beat up, don't give them. Just use your better judgment, you know. Yeah. Anyways, I'm really excited for you guys and your move. You'll have to keep Thanks. us posted with how that goes. Um, this week, everybody, we do have a... a this case is a doozy to me. It's just so awful. Um, you say that every week. <laughs> I know, because they're all awful. It just... The, the content that we cover on this show is just plain awful. Let's put that. Like just, every week when we're like, this one's really sad. They're, they're all, all sad, they're guys. All sad. We're not saying they're not. We're just I'm like really, we just hurt a little when we've just done the research. It feels it's, like the worst case we've ever researched because it's fresh. It's true. It's very true. Uh, but before we start, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Podcast by Proxy. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook and TikTok. Uh, we just haven't been super active over there. We're pretty honest about that. And, uh, you can give us a I'm trying to like threads. Yeah. I haven't even opened threads if I'm being honest. Like I, I try. I see our follows. I'm in like kind of a phase where I'm trying to use my phone less. I'm sure lots of people can relate to that. Uh, and yeah, B, Um, I just, I've, I've just been like busy and mentally, mentally threads is the last thing on my mind. Let's put it that way. But uh, you can also it. follow us on whatever listening platform you are listening to this episode on. Spotify and Apple are, of course, the two main ones. And you can leave a five-star rating and review there as well. 
we do really appreciate it. Um, actually, somebody left us constructive criticism on a five-star review lately, and I really appreciated that, that you're saying, like, you still love the show, but these are maybe the areas that you think it could improve. Um, because a five-star rating either way, like, helps our numbers, helps our visibility. It's huge. Um, it's huge. So we appreciated that so, so, so much. Thank you for that, because we always know that we can improve, and we are always looking to do so. So with that said, I think we'll just hop into the case today. I don't have anything else. No, I'm literally posting on threads now that we were talking about it because yeah. now I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't really have anything else. I am just, again, home from vacation, packing. My world is completely flipped upside down right now. Yeah. I don't know which way is up. My backyard, for anybody who has been invested in my backyard renos, they are trucking along. We are building a deck currently, so I'll keep everyone posted on that. But currently, my backyard is upside down as well. So, you know what? It is what it is. We're in a transitional phase, as we said. We are. Uh, so, we're heading over to Alberta today to Calgary shortly before 4 p.m. on May 4th, 2015. A work crew doing some paving discovered a body in a ditch in the area of Range Road 285 and Township Road 264 in Balzac, Alberta. Uh, if Not anybody is... dealing with those roads. Sorry? Do you remember when we used to have to look up things at our old job and yeah, we had yeah. to use those roads? Oh, nightmares. Yeah, the Range Roads. Yeah. It's hard it. too because there could be like a Township Road 264 in Alberta, in Manitoba, in Saskatchewan, all over the like, place. Like it's everywhere, but yeah. Correct. Yeah. Uh, now, if anybody is familiar with the Cross Iron Mills Mall in Balzac... Uh, it's very distinguishable. The This is where, like, the Bass Pro Shops would be. Um, but there's a Costco. huge one in Balzac just outside of Airdrie, which is, like, 30 minutes north of Calgary. Anyways, if you're familiar with the area, you know exactly which mall I'm talking about. Um, these uh, range roads are kind of located, like, right near this mall. Like, right around the back roads of this mall. After a worker called 911 okay. to report the discovery of the body, the Airdrie RCMP responded and secured the area for investigation. An exhaustive grid search was started, and the victim was soon identified as a current missing person, Jessica Ray Newman. Okay. Jessica Ray Newman was 24 years old when she went missing on March 10th, 2015. She was described as 5'3". Uh, 100 pounds with mid-length blonde hair and blue eyes. She was super petite, like tiny little thing. I was going to say, she sounds like just adorable. She's super adorable. Uh, the Crime Beat episode on her case called her like the classic girl next door. She was super, super cute. And for anyone who hasn't checked it out, the show or the podcast, go listen to Crime Beat. So good. Really, really, really well done. Yeah. So good. Jessica was last seen wearing a black and white mid-length sleeveless dress. It was like a black lace dress and a black leather jacket with studs on the shoulder pads. She was a mother of three young boys and Jessica uh -huh. loved baking, gaming, and singing karaoke. Preach, girl. Preach. Right? They have a video of her singing karaoke on, uh, on the Crime Beat episode and uh, it's, again, super, super cute. 
Jessica was originally from BC, but she moved to Calgary with her family at the age of five. She became a young mother herself at the age of 16, and shortly after that, she had a second child. So she had her first two children really young. So like under 20, she had two kids, okay? Yes. Uh, so she, like she was, of course, super young with these two little kids, and we all know at that age, most of us are like far from being settled down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so her family helped her raise her two boys, um, and it seemed as well that Jessica had two younger brothers, uh, so mm-hmm. they were all kind of raised together at this point. Aww. By her 20s, Jessica had started to gain more independence. She was thinking about her future, planning on going to school, um, and she also really, really wanted to have a family. Her mother, yeah. Rhonda Stewart... Uh, Described Jessica as an easygoing person and incredibly kind. Jessica was introduced to her ex-boyfriend, 30-year-old Kevin Rubletz, by a mutual friend approximately three years prior to her disappearance, and the two were said to have hit it off right away. Her mother, Rhonda, said Jessica was infatuated with Kevin and thought he was the one very quickly. Again, she really, really, really wanted a family for these two boys of her and yeah you have two little kids all you probably want is the family that's why I was like fair I think I would want the same thing if I was a single mom at 20 with two little kids I just want to give them a family life and I think you see that pretty common with people who have had kids young and if you know they aren't with the dad like you see I think it's just a priority to them that family is important that's all it makes sense agreed um and so they moved in together like almost immediately And they were living in a, I believe it was a trailer just outside of Red Deer. So quite a ways away from Calgary, but they were still in like the, that kind of area. So they moved in together and pretty soon after Jessica and Kevin got together, she discovered that she was pregnant with another son. Oh, three boys. That's a lot of boys. That's <laughs> a lot of boys. So, but it seemed like she was excited about being a boy mom. Um, again, she always wanted a family. They were already living with at least one of her other sons. Um, the And a lot of women I know, like, once they have a boy or two, they're like, I am so good to be a boy mom. Like, oh, yeah. I got this. Yeah. Like, it's just, you, like, lock into it and you become the boy mom and it's good. So. Yeah. If I ever sure decided to have kids, my, like, I think <clears> that my... You get you don't get to Preference. choose, but I think that I would love to be a boy mom. Um, but I also yeah. think that that's only because I don't want to deal with myself. Agreed. Yeah, I just don't want to do that. So nope. Uh, Brandon's a saint. Let's make another one of him. Oh, Brandon <laughs> running around. Exactly. Then you think about oh. little me running around, and you're like, oh my Ooh. god, that's terrifying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's true. So, the two began having troubles, it seems. The first major thing was that Kevin Rubletz cheated on Jessica during her pregnancy. Uh, so, her mom kind of thought yeah, everything was going on. fine, and then Jessica was obviously super upset because he found out that she, that he, sorry, cheated on her while she was pregnant with their child. Um, so, it seems as though they did stay together and that's 
things seem to be going okay. I will note that it was hard to find a lot of like in-depth information about their relationship at this time because we really only have kind of like what Jessica's mom can tell us and that's it. We don't know a lot. Um, because we only really have have one source. Yeah. I mean, we have some text messages that we'll talk about later, but we don't have a lot for like this time period during their relationship. Yeah. So it seems that they stayed together. Things were going okay. And about a year after their son was born, the couple kind of started to struggle again. This time they were having a hard time finding work in the Red Deer area. And so they decided to move back home to Calgary. Um, Kevin had family in Calgary and things like this. They had more support from family. So they moved back. However, this is when Jessica's mom says the relationship really began to break down. And the... It's hard on the ego. Yeah. I think that they... I don't think Kevin was always the best partner, let's put it that way. Well, and I can't imagine adding on to an already not stable relationship, trying to add in living with family or having more people involved in your relationship again, even if they think it's positive. It's tough. Yeah, I think that there was some... Like, I know there was a mention in the Crime Beat podcast episode about, you know, Jessica wanted to leave but Kevin Rubletz was basically when she got home from work taking all of her tips and so she was kind of trying to like split her tips so that she could bank some money and leave it in her vehicle or like like hide it kind of thing leave it with someone at work even and the rest um but then he, he found out about this and he got upset about this and so there was some definite problems going on there um but she was really trying to get out So they officially broke up in August of 2014, but it seems that they had maintained a co-parenting relationship of sorts. Now, news reports write that they maintained a co-parenting relationship that was amicable. However, from what I found, Kevin ended up getting full custody of their son because he made allegations to the court that Jessica was an alcoholic. And she was definitely a younger 20-year-old that was still drinking socially and partying, but she was by no means a full-blown alcoholic, and she was... going out drinking with friends, that's one thing. If she's drinking all day while she's home alone with the kids, that's a different thing, and it doesn't sound like that's what she was doing. No. By all accounts, I could not find any indication that she was actually, like, abusing alcohol and in a... in an addiction with it. Like, she was just partying and he didn't being a 20 year old he didn't like it basically and he didn't have control of her anymore so he ends up getting full control uh full custody sorry because he makes these allegations to the court and even though she's not an alcoholic she now has to attend counseling and aa in order to get this paperwork that says she's not an alcoholic to prove herself and get her visitation back he is an older man who knows how to navigate life better and probably has more money than her. And unfortunately, that is probably playing into this majorly. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So at the time of Jessica's disappearance in March of 2015, she had done the work required to obtain visitations with her son. And the people that were close to her said that Jessica was the healthiest they had ever seen her. She wasn't partying at all. She was going to the gym. She was like, all she cared about was getting 50-50 custody of her and 
Kevin Rublet's making the healthiest son. life possible. Absolutely. Like, everybody said Good that she was her. fully... I want to use the word turning her life around, but, I mean, it's not like no, she she's was... growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And she was making... She's making all these decisions to... To be the healthiest and the best mom she can be to her children. And, um, yeah, so... Kevin and Jessica at this point, they're still in communication and her roommate at the time said that she was playing nice with him in order to get her visitation and custody back. So we've all heard that. Sure. Like, I just got to be nice to him. As someone who has divorced parents, you play nice. Yeah. When Kevin and Jessica had originally split up, um, so I guess they were engaged. He had given her a ring and... How it sounds like it went was she kind of said, like, when you're ready to treat me like a wife, you can give me this ring back. Took her ring off and gave it back to him. And then he said, well, if we're done, get out of the house, basically. So he kicked her out of the home that they had shared. Um, And so for a while, she was just staying at friends' houses, like on friends' couches and things. And Jessica needed a stable place to stay to prove to the courts that she was fit to have custody of her child. Like, you can't just be bouncing around on couches. It doesn't look great to the courts. So, Jessica had a friend named Michael Hahn. It sounds like they had known each other for about a year, and Michael was 30 years older than Jessica, but he did have an empty basement in his house, and so seeing that she needed, like, a stable place to just be hers... Michael ends up offering her this empty basement. Now, it doesn't sound like it was, like, a fully set up basement suite, per se, but it had, like... Just, like, an empty... A bedroom for her, a living space for her, probably still, like, shared kitchen. Maybe there's a bathroom down there. But it wasn't, like, a fully legal set up separate suite. It was just, like, a basement area in his home that was empty that he said, you can set this up and it can all be yours kind of thing. So that's super great. Yeah, that's amazing. Now, Michael, like I said, he was 30 years older than Jessica, so he would have been in his 50s, and he had admitted that he originally had a little bit of a crush on her, even though she was way younger than him, um, but that their relationship just eventually turned into more of a father-daughter situation. This, This guy was super forthcoming and open about everything to do with his like relationship and situation (laughs) as it related to jessica he had nothing to hide um great yeah i think also after they broke up so she's uh going to the gym she's working she found this new stable place to live she has her visitation with her son back and so they're doing their visits there um jessica also starts to date somebody new His name was Ryan Chamberlain, and they had previously dated in 2008. Um, Ryan said that at this point he was well past his partying days as well, and so they were spending their time hanging out with their kids because he had a child with an ex-partner as well. Um, It sounded like just doing regular hanging out and watching a movie. We took the kids to the parks. We played games. We had mini golfing, like normal family activities. Exactly. Yeah. Very much so. I agree. Um, And they had a lot in common because they were both going through custody battles at the time with their ex-partners. So they kind of had that to, like, lean on each other. 
Ryan described Jessica as nice to absolutely everybody and said she was bubbly, happy, and outgoing. It sounds like this girl was the kindest. It sounds like it. Yeah. Super, super kind. So Makes on... me sad that her ex tried to like ruin her name so much because yeah. it doesn't sound like she's a bad person at all. You're right. She just sounds young. Yeah, exactly. And he... Ugh. Yeah, he really took advantage of that. And like you said, the power dynamic of him being like a 30-year-old man. Um, yeah. On March 10th, 2015, which was the day Jessica went missing, her roommate, Michael Hahn, dropped her off at work for her 4 p.m. shift at uh, the restaurant that she was working at. He said that day she was in good spirits and that she was going to do the night shift because she had switched her shift from her usual day shift so that she could attend court the next day. So she usually worked days, but she had swapped a shift with somebody so that she could go to her court date the next day. Um, and this was going to be a custody hearing regarding her and Kevin Rublet's shared two-year-old son. And she was supposed to be getting 50-50 custody at this hearing. He had agreed and told her that he was giving her 50-50 custody at this court hearing. They were supposed to go together. What about the other one? What do you mean? Doesn't she have two kids with him? No, she has two kids from other relationships that it sounds like she, her family oh, okay, had custody yeah. of. And then she just had one child with Kevin Rublet is the son, sorry, that he took custody of and said that she was unfit was drinking and yes. okay okay yeah. there's so, a lot of kids going on right now yeah so we're only talking about custody of her youngest son that she shares two year old okay. her ex kevin rublets yeah um so this court hearing was supposed to be the next day march 11th 2015 she never shows up this is alarming where that was going yeah, this is super alarming for her family and friends because as we just discussed, this hearing was hugely important to Jessica. It was like the only thing she had been working towards for months and she had never missed a visitation or a court appearance prior to this. Michael okay. Hahn reported Jessica missing to police on Friday, March 13th, 2015. So like three or four days later. After he went to her work and discovered she had not shown up for her shifts. Jessica had been due to come home from work the night of March 10th after her shift at the Water Grill Steakhouse and Bar, uh, which is now closed. And when she never returned, Michael assumed, like, maybe she just went to her boyfriend's. You're probably not going to call 911 the first night that your roommate doesn't come home from work at 10 p.m. Yeah. Seems like Unless maybe... they never went out ever which isn't the case because she has a boyfriend i'm mm -hmm. sure but yeah i it would probably take a few days before i would call nine one one on my roommate yeah so uh he assumes that she probably just went to her boyfriend's or something and then the next day he was like okay maybe court didn't go well and she just wants a few days to herself like again they're not attached at the hip this is just or it's just a convenient a situation for situation both of them. exactly yeah. Um, so at first, yeah, he wasn't too concerned. However, Michael had also texted Jessica the next day to confirm gym plans and she never responded. She also had a big dog at home that needed to be fed and like let out. And so it was, again, a concern that she wasn't coming home or communicating this to anybody that she needed help feeding the dog. Um, 
So Michael realizes by Friday that none of Jessica's family or friends have been in contact with her and that she missed work. And this is when he starts to be concerned. So he doesn't. Yeah, I think the missing work with no contact would make me nervous, too. Yeah, he doesn't call police yet, but, like, he's now gone down to her work to try and check on her and have a conversation with her. She's not there. He's realizing nobody's really heard from her, and so now it's kind of on his radar. Yeah, I think his spidey senses are tingling now, like, oh, God, what if something happened? The what if is kicking in. For sure. So, Michael goes to work that Friday evening, and while he's at work, uh, Kevin Rubletz shows up at his house to drop off his and Jessica's son for their visit, but Jessica wasn't there. Okay, so the ex is playing, like, because I'm assuming the ex is in on this, because I think so. So, on my hunch, he's trying to, like, show up and pretend like he's doing this custody exchange. 100%. As planned. Yes. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Michael speaks with Kevin. I'm on your case. Yeah, Michael speaks with Kevin over the phone because it sounds like like his son was home and then his son called him and was like, hey, this guy just showed up here looking for Jessica and she's not here. And so Michael and Kevin speak on the phone and he tells Kevin that she hadn't been at work for the last few days and that none of her family or friends had heard from her. And so when Kevin tells Michael that he hadn't heard from her either and that she wasn't in court that week for their hearing... Michael immediately hangs up the phone and calls 911 to report her as a missing person. Because at this point, he didn't know that she didn't show up to court. Well, and he clearly, whether they're close friends or not, if you're living with someone, you have a tendency to go home and sit on the couch and chat with them and talk Mm -hmm. about your situation. And I'm sure he asks, like, oh, how are the kids? How's that going? So I think this guy would probably be pretty in the loop to her life and what she's going through. So yes. He, he knows how hard she's fighting for her kids. A hundred percent. Yeah. Michael said that Kevin didn't seem very concerned about the fact that nobody could get a hold of Jessica and sort of implied that she must have just gone on a bender. Oh, uh, fuck off. And he uses this a few times. Of Jessica's okay. disappearance, Michael said, quote, very uncharacteristic. She loves her son dearly. The court date was the next morning. She was definitely going to go to that because she wanted to make sure to have the custody hearing to get 50-50. That's what they were talking about. She has never missed a date to have her visitations with her son either. So at that point, when she didn't show up, that's when I got really concerned. Ditto. What a good friend. Yeah. Yeah. Michael was really on it with this and yeah really a stand-up guy i agree okay really looking out for her when she i will say we've had a few cases lately where there's like a really solid best friend or someone that really like helps out and i have to commend those people yeah and she really needed somebody to look out for her at this point and i'm really happy that michael was a safe person that she could trust because i feel like many times we hear that he saw that yeah, we, like we offering her that place. We often see that go awry. So it's just a really nice example yeah. of like, there are good people in the world. Oh, when you started this, I thought it was Michael. Yeah, no, Michael is. We but love I don't him. think He's it's Michael guy. in any way. Sweet baby Michael didn't do anything here. Great guy. In this instance, great guy. Okay, we can trust him. We can trust one man here. We can trust Michael in this case. Yeah, it's Michael. So after Jessica is reported missing to the Calgary police, the police begin investigating and they search Jessica's room and they start doing a neighborhood canvas. 
They also searched the home of Michael Hahn, of course, because that's where Jessica was living. And Michael consented to them looking through his phone and his computer. Um, Michael is eventually cleared of any involvement with Jessica's disappearance based on his electronic footprint, which gave him an alibi. Sack. They also spoke with her boyfriend, Ryan Chamberlain, who was cooperative and also gave his cell phone and laptop for review by police. Ryan was interrogated extensively and also had his home searched, but was cleared of any involvement. Ryan said that his involvement in this entire investigation was not inconvenient to him at all and that it needed to be done and he had nothing to hide. Oh my God, that is the attitude to have people. 100%. I get that it's annoying to be interviewed and questioned and called and have to drop everything you're doing when they ask, but... It is the least you can do. Yeah, no, that's 100% what he said, too, was he's like, this is nothing. <sighs> Love if, that. If it, if it helps, if it does. Mike and Ryan are really, they're really stand-up good guys. guys here. Yeah. Loving these guys. <laughs> yeah, and Ryan said of Jessica, she was always happy. She was never mad, never down, always helped. A great spirit to be around. Oh. I know, she just sounded so sweet. As investigators retraced Jessica's steps, they discovered that she left the bar and grill after her shift at work at approximately 9.30 p.m. on March 10th, 2015, and was picked up by her ex-boyfriend, Kevin Rubletz. We're all all shocked. Fuck. Three Calgary police officers initially meet uh, with Kevin and speak with him early on in the investigation. Um, They met him at his current girlfriend's house. So he had a girlfriend at the time and they went and interviewed him kind of like at the kitchen table of his girlfriend's house. Awkward, but okay. Yeah, a little. At the time, he painted Jessica as a party girl who may have just simply gone on a days long drinking binge. So same thing. He said she went out on a bender, which agreed bullshit. He told Sergeant Matt Baker that he hadn't worried when she failed to show up to family court because he thought she just might be on a bender. He said, quote, I figured she might have just gone out drinking. She doesn't remember what she does. She flirts. As if that's relevant. Such a... Also, like, I don't care if she's a sex worker. It has nothing to do with her parenting. Mm-hmm. And, like, her being missing. Well, yeah. Right? Because he's like, oh, I just figure she's out on a bender. No. Yeah. So Kevin Rublet's initial account of the evening of March 10th was that he picked up Jessica from from work and the two went for coffee at 10 p.m. to review her AA paperwork and discuss the upcoming custody hearing the next day. So sort Uh -uh. of makes sense. He picks her up from work. I just don't think your lawyers would ever say that's something you should do, nor would you be doing it at 10 p.m. the day before court. I can agree with that for sure. Um, yeah, picking her up and going and just going over her paperwork uh, for custody no. the next day. Kevin then says he dropped Jessica off at home at around 10.30 p.m. before going home himself, but that he drove away before seeing her physically enter the home. So they're like, oh, did you see her enter her house? And he's like, no, I drove away. Okay. Huh. His sister, Nicole, told police that her brother, who was living with her at the time, arrived home where the two lived at 1124 p.m. that evening. 
Now, it should have only taken Kevin Rumblatz about 15 minutes to go from Jessica's house to his own if he drove straight there. Um, and in an interview, like a second statement a year later, Nicole then says her clock was just ahead by 45 minutes. At least just say an hour. So it was the time change. Don't go with 45. Yeah. See, I don't know. I guess it was wrong and I never changed it with the time change. Her clock was just ahead by 45 whole minutes. So don't get me wrong. My clock in my car has been out by like a weird number and I've just learned to adjust it in my head rather than changing the time. But 45 minutes is a weird amount of time. Yeah, I mean, unless I guess unless the car battery died or something like it does happen. I'm I'm not about to sit here and act like it's like impossible, but it's a huge coincidence. I also think you would go in your house and then you'd see another clock and you'd be in your home and you'd see the time. Sure. Yeah. It's a bit of a quinky dink. So that's his first that's his first statement that he picks her up from work, they have coffee, they go over this paperwork, he drops her off at home, he does not see her enter the home, but she gets out of the vehicle and then he drives to his own house. End of the evening. And then there's some timestamp confusion. Okay. Yes. So in a second interview with Rublets within a couple of days, Sergeant Baker asks uh, what route Kevin Rublets took home after dropping Jessica off. So he's like, oh, what route did you drive home? And added that he would confirm the route via GPS. So Sergeant Baker says Rublets hesitated at this point and then tells him that Jessica had given him a hug and a kiss on the cheek goodbye before getting out of his van at her house. And DNA. this, like stirred up some feelings in him and so he decided to go for a drive to quote clear his head because this had like stirred up these emotions in him and he just like needed to go for a long drive um again you have court tomorrow yeah so and i don't think after all these years of you bashing this woman you've got feelings again i don't believe it yeah, I don't, I don't know. and I don't believe I mean, anything this guy is saying. And not because I think he did it. Now, by this point, like, Jessica and Kevin were dating other people. However, their text messages, which we find out later, did indicate that they had maintained some form of, uh, like, calling each other baby sometimes. Like flirty relationship. Flirty kinda. relationship over, maybe secretly. Okay. Um, but again... Uh-huh. Jessica's roommate said that she was just trying to play nice to him so she could get custody back. So it's very possible she was just playing along. Um, And we've all been on the female side of that where you're just trying to, like, not make things weird with a guy. So you're overtly polite and almost borderline flirty. And then that's when those things get used in court against you being like, well, look, she was in on it, too. And it's like... No, I was trying not to get either, like, murdered or abused or manipulated. A hundred percent. Or it's possible that she felt that if she didn't go along with him, if she upset him, if she, like, you know, refused his advances, that this is he all for her kids. would not give her her custody back because at this point he holds all the power. So, yeah. Yeah. He has everything. Ball is in his court, unfortunately. Yeah. Now... 
of course, the the police have now told him that they can confirm the route he drives via GPS, and he has now told them that he didn't drive straight home. He went for this long drive. Now, keep in mind that at this point, the police, Jessica hasn't been found, so they don't, mm-hmm. there's no location that there is that is in their head kind of thing that they, because she they don't know where she is. Well, yeah, she went... This is what happened to my uncle. He was on a security camera and just gone. They had no idea where to look. Kevin Rubletz then tells them in this interview that he drove... The drive that he went on that night was out to Balzac and retraced the route that he took... That he was driving near the Cross Iron Mills Mall. Uh, So exactly the route and area that they needed to go to. So he inserts... Like Balzac and the back roads of the Cross Iron Mills Mall long before she is even found. So, of course, they have this information now. So, like, yeah, why were they not retracing steps or doing any? I mean, I guess it's a large area. It's still vast to go. Well, look and at. they don't they don't know. You, you know what I mean? That's that. it's yeah. just like it's just so stupid. Like you literally just inserted. Anyways, we'll get there. Over the three days that Kevin Rubletz was spoken to, there were just, like, small changes in his story that caused the police to be concerned that he might be responsible for Jessica's disappearance. He's the only person they've talked to at this point whose story just, like, doesn't super match up. He's been in the area. He has a reason to do it. There's going through this custody battle, like... Well, they don't know that he was in the... They don't know the area at this point, right? Like, they don't know that Jessica's there. Yeah, I guess so. Because that information just com- really looking. That information just becomes very, very crucial. Obviously, later on when they find her and they're like, when the call comes um, in from the person found her. Yeah. Did he not just tell us those are the exact roads that he was driving that night? Like, what the fuck? I mean, like, kudos to you for not wanting to be lying to police, but at the same time, like, lie to police. Well, in court later, <laughs> Actually, don't even they... lie. Don't give information that isn't needed. Like. And I'm not the, saying I want this guy to get away with anything, but just in general, like. The prosecution talk. later at trial calls this a slip up. Basically says he fucked I up. probably was. Yeah. So Kevin, he's initially cooperative and agrees to a search of his vehicle. So they just do kind of, because again, Jessica's only a missing person at this point. They don't actually have evidence to prove a that a crime has been committed or that there's been any foul play. Um, and so there's only so much that they can do without a warrant, and it's hard to get a warrant if you cursory. don't have that evidence that a crime has occurred. Um, so, like, he agrees to have them do kind of like, like you said, a cursory, like a visual search of the vehicle. They poke their head in, they see some tools, yeah, it's this dirty. This is like border security shit. They're not taking his headlights out or anything. No, they don't see anything, like in an initial search that would cause them concern in his vehicle. Um, He also offers to give them his cell phone so that they could analyze it. However, he asked to hold on to it for a few days because it was a work phone. And he said he would give it to them on the Sunday. I have totally seen this case, this crime beat. Oh, have you? It sounded familiar up until now. But, like, again, it's kind of common to, like, we hear other stories with custody battles and things. So it was kind of similar. But this detail, I remember being like, why would they let him do that? Yeah. So on the Sunday, though, 
he like emails or calls the Calgary police where he's supposed to drop off the phone and says that he lost it at a house party the night before. Yep. Uh, I and remember these deep. Yeah, and there's so there's also some weird stuff with like communications with his boss during this period, and we will get into that uh, a little yes. bit later in the episode. Um, but yeah, the the phone thing is suspicious, if you will. Don't be suspicious. Don't. Uh, so a few weeks into Jessica's missing person investigation, her mother Rhonda Stewart is informed that the investigation is being changed to a homicide investigation. Police say at this point they have reason to believe that Jessica was not simply missing and a review of her online activity showed that it completely stopped at around 9 or 10 p.m. on March 10th, 2015, despite her being a, like, heavy texter and social media user. Well, she's in her 20s. I think about how much my 20-year-old niece is holding her phone at any given time. Yeah. And how quickly she's clearing things, doing things, replying. So, yeah, I get it. Well, and even 2015, like, I was in my uh, early 20s, and, yeah, I was also a heavy uh, social oh, God, media yeah, user and texter. So, yeah, I get it. Detective Dave Sweet of the Calgary Police Homicide Unit said that at the time, there was 14 persons of interest or incidents that they were wanting to look at. He called the case a classic whodunit um, just because there was so many people that they had to look at and clear Mm -hmm. he issued a public request for anyone who had knowledge of jessica's whereabouts to come forward saying quote jessica's case is not going away my best advice to you is to do what is right and contact police yeah it should be what's right yeah so It was nearly two months to the day that Jessica disappeared that she was discovered in the ditch in Balzac on May the 4th, 2015. Um, So if you remember from the beginning of the episode, Jessica was found at 4 p.m. by a crew of workers in a ditch in the area of Range Road 285 and Township Road 265 East, which is near the Cross Iron Mills Mall in Balzac. The Airdrie RCMP were initially on scene because that's who received the 911 call um, and that's the area that it was in like Airdrie would be the closest kind of like main city I think Balzac is more of a township um, how, anyways however once the person that was found was believed to be missing person Jessica Newman which they identified fairly quickly the Calgary police became the lead in the investigation because of course it was their missing person investigation yeah. Jessica's mother said that the police contacted her as soon as the body was discovered, um, and Jessica's death was ruled a homicide within a couple of days. Fair. Jessica's death was tragic for the people that loved her. Her family and friends' lives were changed forever when they heard the news, and even her coworkers and the regulars at the water grill where she worked were devastated by her loss. Her mother a lot of time with your work people. You do, yeah. Those connections are so strong. They're not to be undervalued. No, and even the regulars. Like, there are so... When you work at a restaurant or in, like, the service industry, there's so many people that come in every single day, and, like, you might be the only person that they closely interact with that whole day. 
Yeah, I work with all the back of house staff in my job in mm-hmm. places, and I love interacting with them because yeah. they are like the people I see day to day. Yeah. Jessica's mother, Rhonda, said the hardest part of um, the hardest part of the whole thing was telling Jessica's children that their mother had died uh, at the time of her death. Her sons were eight, five, and two years old, um, which oh. is awful. The water grill where she worked held a memorial and a fundraiser for Jessica, and a GoFundMe page was also set up to help support Jessica's family with funeral costs and her children's care, um, because her family now has three young kids to take care of. Yeah, overnight, that's a huge change to your, like, everyday life, but not to mention your finances. Yeah. And... Okay, I don't know this for a fact, but it seems, based on the information that I can find, that the two older sons, like, stayed with her mom. Because like, I, her family. That was... mm-hmm. And it sounds like the way it's described is that her youngest son, which was her and Kevin Rublet's son, is has been moved to a loving, living situation. Like, he's in a good place. So okay, so I he's don't... either with family or possibly was adopted to the right Correct. situation. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of the vibe that I got. Fair, as long as he's happy and healthy and well-adjusted. Who cares? Exactly, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. An autopsy was performed um, on Jessica, and this part is rough. So just like a trigger warning, it's like very violent and overkill. Jessica died as a result of 75 stab wounds. Overkill isn't even the right word. Nowhere near the right word. In my opinion. Um, And of course, as soon as the police officially identified the victim as Jessica Newman, they were shocked at the location of where she was found. Like. Well, after he had literally said almost immediately... Yeah, Kevin or very Rub- early on, Kevin Rublev where had he was, literally placed himself in the exact location the night she went missing at his at a weird second time interview too. with police. Yeah, um, why would you be in that area at that time of night if you weren't involved? And like, listen, I am all for. I I understand going for a long drive. I understand driving the back roads at night. Like, been there, done that, lived in Alberta, lived in this area of Alberta, and know all about (laughs) it. Like, that is what you do. However, um, that is only information that Jessica's killer would have known. And you inserted that narrative before she was even found. So, yeah, it's weird too after the phone was lost and they weren't gonna they wouldn't be able to like retrace for sure his digital footprint it's weird that he let that information in so i do not disagree that maybe it was a slip because if they couldn't trace where you were why would you tell them where you were Mm -hmm. yeah um so jessica's purse was also discovered at the scene and it was noticed that Uh, Because she had actually, it seems like they figured out that she had actually been given back her engagement ring in like January of 2015. And it seems like she took it back, but it was in her purse, maybe like she wasn't wearing it, but she had it. Um, And this engagement ring was missing out of her purse. So her purse was found Mm -hmm. at the scene, but the, the ring was gone. 
I wonder if she maybe was going to give it back to him. Maybe. And that's why she had it on her as well. Maybe he gave it back to her thinking that she was going to wear it and she just took it to not appease him. cause a scene to appease him and then just left it in her purse yeah. because she was dating somebody else and didn't want to wear it. Like, who knows? Yeah, maybe she kept it in her purse so if she ran into him or when they did exchanges, she could put it on. It's very possible. Yeah. But in, in any event, uh, she had it and when the police found her purse, it was no longer there. Interesting. So the police know at this point that they need to do a way more thorough search of the vehicle Kevin was driving at the time that that Jessica went missing, which was a van that he drove for work or like that he drove, but it was his mom's van. It was like registered to his mom, but it was he drove it. Like he was the primary occupant. Okay. So, like I mentioned before, they had been able to do an initial search of it, which was just, like, a visual search. And at the time, the officers didn't see anything that, like, stood out to them that would prompt them to ask for a further search of the van. And, again, at this point, Jessica's just a missing person. There's no – it's not a murder investigation. And so there weren't a lot of grounds to do a full forensics on the van. Well, and it's a lot of work to get a warrant. Like, you don't really want to plug up the system with paperwork that isn't – needed because other people are waiting for warrants too and clerical stuff within the judicial system so yeah yeah i get why they wouldn't so of course now that they have all this information they're like well shit now we need to do forensics on this vehicle when they probably lost it at a house party uh, close really close I don't remember, so that was just me trying to be funny. They attempt, so they they go to get access to this vehicle, and they discover that one day after Jessica's body was found, so on on May 5th, so the day after her body was found, Kevin Rublet's mother, stepfather, and grandmother took the van to a wrecking yard and got rid of it. Disposed of it. I think it's funny how it's all the elderly people in his family just to make sure it wasn't him. Threw it in the garbaggio. Okay. Police are able to intercept this, however. um, So the van is, like, still there. Nothing's happened to it yet. Uh, They get the van. They are able to examine it. And they notice significant, like, gouge marks. Almost like a part of the fabric had been cut out. In both, like, the passenger side and the driver's seat where the seat belts attach. Full forensic examination was done on the vehicle, and they end up finding Jessica's blood in a bolting mechanism under the seat. Because, like, when they do this, they take so this shit So unless there's, like, apart. an excessive amount of blood, it would not get in there. Uh-huh. That's exactly it. Yes. Unless there was Yeah, seeping, it has to, like, pour. It would of. have to be... Fuck, sorry for... I try not to swear that much on this show anymore, but unless it's fucking seeping, it's not getting... Like, maybe someone's been stabbed 70-plus times in the seat? Like, I'm talking they took the bolt out, and her DNA was found under that. That's brutal. Because, like, Katie's saying... I imagine it, like, in the sliders where, like, your seat moves. Like, if you... That's exactly Like, in the wheels of those are, like, where you would get it if you, like, say, for example, like, if I was to spill a milkshake in my car, a whole entire milkshake, it would get into some crevices that I couldn't clean. Mm -hmm. And blood is even liquidier than that. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, they literally take the seat off, and it's, like, 
that's how they find her DNA. Um, because you can clean up, but you can't clean up that well. So that's awful and terrible and horrible. I told you, this case is hard. This is a rough one. The worst part is, I know this case. I've watched this episode of Crime Beat or listened to it, and I'm still like, ah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the homicide unit also searched the home of Rublets, where he was living with other family members at the time Jessica disappeared. Uh, ultimately, Kevin Rublets is arrested and charged with second-degree murder on June 26, 2015, for the homicide of his ex-girlfriend and the mother of his child, Jessica Ray Newman. Uh, the arrest is made without incident, meaning he went cooperatively. Jessica's mother, Rhonda Stewart, said that finding out it was Kevin was even harder. Um, she said it would have been so much easier if it was a random person and that Jessica totally trusted him. Rublets was incarcerated awaiting trial and his lawyer made a statement saying Kevin um, said he did not kill his ex-girlfriend. Rublets was denied bail in September of 2015. Jessica's friends and family were relieved that he was not granted a, granted bail. Um, Kevin was also denied legal aid, but ended up making an appeal to the government who agreed to pay for his legal representation. Why? So I don't know the ins and outs of this. And to be honest, I chose not to go look. Yeah, I don't think um, I just did. It'd I was probably like, be more infuriating or frustrating than knowledge of base. So. Like I'm not going down this rabbit hole. Uh, but yeah, essentially he was denied oh. legal aid, but his defense attorney made an appeal to the government and they ended up paying for it anyways. Trial is scheduled to begin in uh, late 2017. Okay. I don't know anything you do. Hold on. Uh, so in November of 2017, a three-week jury trial began with presiding judge Court of Queen's Bench Justice Glenn Pullman and a jury pool of six male and six female jurors. Rublets was represented by defense lawyers Brendan Miller and Joshua Sutherland, which was shocking considering the government was paying for his legal aid. So what did they pay for him to have two lawyers? That seems ridiculous. And the Crown yeah. prosecutors were Shane Parker and Tom Spark. Uh, yeah, I was like, what? So like young black people who haven't done anything wrong get denied legal aid. And then this guy, who is very obviously guilty, gets two lawyers and they're paid for yeah and wait until you hear their defense just fucking wait i mean look I... it's your job to provide a defense it it is i get that uh it's your job to provide reasonable doubt that is what that is what is ultimately going to save your client however in my opinion this one's a stretch but we'll get there oh god i'm like scared to even hear what you're about to say <laughs> Uh, so, of course, we know that since there's a jury trial, Kevin Rublets pleaded not guilty. Um, had he have pled guilty, we wouldn't have a jury trial and we would go straight to sentencing. So whenever you see that there is a trial happening, it means the person has pleaded not guilty. The Crown's theory was that Jessica was killed in a spur-of-the-moment crime of passion while she was sitting in the front seat of Kevin Rublet's van. Uh, so this is why the charge, if you're wondering why it's a second-degree murder charge and not a first-degree murder charge, what the Crown is alleging is that there was intent to kill, 
but there was no forethought or planning. So that is really the main distinguisher. So, like, once he was in the car with her, he wanted to do it, and that was what he was going to do, but he didn't plan to go pick her up, take her somewhere, and kill her. Correct. So what they're saying is that in the spur of the moment, at the time the action occurred, he did intend to kill her with what he was doing. I don't think that you can argue he accidentally killed her with 75 stab wounds, um, because that would be an argument for manslaughter. However, they're not, they don't have any evidence to show that he, he pre-planned this and that exactly like you said, he intended to go pick her up and murder her. Yeah, he didn't go into it thinking like, oh, I'm going to go kill my ex-girlfriend tonight. He went into it thinking, I'm going to take care of the situation, I'm going to go talk to her. Yeah, sure. And it went, oh, yeah, I mean, I even have a hard time with that, but I I get what you're saying, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Prosecutors Shane Parker and Tom Spark told the jury in their opening statement that the evidence would show Kevin Rubletz killed Jessica in a spontaneous but intentional act of violence and then dumped her body. Text message evidence was presented by the Crown that showed at the time of Jessica's death, she and Rubletz were seeing other people, but it also showed that the two were exchanging their own romantic text messages between December 2014 and March of 2015. Um, basically these text messages just, just showed that up until Jessica's death, Kevin and Jessica were calling each other sweetheart and honey. Um, there was evidence that, like I said, they had maybe become engaged again in January of 2015 secretly. They were just, they had this kind of uh, loving side relationship going over at least text from what we can gather in this evidence. And we kind of already discussed that. Yeah. We knew that already to a certain extent. Yeah. When Jessica's body was found, she was wearing the same dress that she wore that evening to work. However, it was pulled, like, down to her waist, indicating that she may have been killed while the two were either intimate or beginning to be intimate. And so the Crown suggested that perhaps they did intend to drive out to that remote location that evening in sort of like a lover's lane yeah. type of situation like maybe they were going out to have a chat Pull around and it. it it turned intimate you know what i mean like we don't know it's not my business um and then what they're saying is that in this moment where she is vulnerable and she is getting intimate with him in a spontaneous but intentional act of violence he decides to kill her um, we know yeah. her, her engagement ring had been taken. We know he had given it back to her by that point. Um, their text communications, I guess, made it seem like perhaps they were at that location intentionally. Like maybe there was something in there where they had like planned to have. Maybe they, or that's just where they used to hang out when they were younger. Like anything. Sure. Anything. Uh, Jessica's DNA was found inside the vehicle as we know including they ended up finding it as well on the underside of the fabric of the passenger side seat which had been gouged Um, and a blood spatter pattern expert testified that the evidence in the van showed a quote bloodletting event happened in that seat Um, they also described evidence of what was a botched cleanup. Like basically they tried to clean it up, but when they actually started doing forensics, it wasn't that hard to find her DNA is essentially what they're saying. 
I didn't think it would be. I don't think any of us did the way this was going. No, it wasn't. It wasn't difficult is basically what they were saying. Jurors were told how the Calgary police questioned Kevin Rublet several times and noted changes in his version of events. They were told how he told them that the whole cell phone thing, like, you can have my cell phone, but then I lost it. Um, Kevin Rublet's boss at the time actually testified on the stand and said that on March 23rd, 2015, which would have been about two weeks after Jessica went missing... Um, Rublets told him that he had been, quote, driving the back roads at Cross Iron Mills Mall the night Jessica disappeared. This boss of his, Timothy Lambert, also testified that Rublets had worked for his countertop company for about a month and stated Rublets told him he was unable to show up for a shift because he was with the police who had taken his phone. Now, the jurors had already heard by this point that Rublets told investigators he had lost his phone so he's lying to police he's lying to his boss um kevin rublet's yeah, just isn't looking all smarter that than everyone around him and he's, he's just, not he's just not not looking super credible at this point nope not at all sergeant baker testified to the jury that he had followed the standard investigative format for missing person cases checking local hospitals airports attempting to track jessica's cell phone and doing banking inquiries He also followed up from a tip from the public uh, that Jessica had been spotted on a C train. He said all of his inquiries came up empty um, and also testified that the investigation still wasn't criminal when he asked Rublets' permission to seize his cell phone with the intention of checking its GPS to confirm the route driven the night of Jessica's disappearance. Um, So he's basically saying, like, wasn't even criminal at this point. He still lied. Yeah, he's lying for no reason. He's making it worse for himself at this point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, his, so his boss, just to go back to his boss's testimony, I'm all over the place. His boss testified that that same day on March 23rd, um, Rublets apparently showed up to his boss's house at like 7 p.m. to drop off some tools. And he told him that the police were going to be seizing his van and that he didn't want them to take the tools However, the police never seized his van and had never told him they were going to. They just asked to do, like, an initial search. A cursory search, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. And, like, Jessica was still considered a missing. That van? Right, exactly. And, like, Jessica was still a missing person. There wasn't enough evidence to even serve a warrant for the van at this point. Um, so, yeah. Jurors also heard that six weeks later, the day after Jessica's body was discovered, investigators tracked said van to a pick and pull, like a wrecking yard, like I said, where uh, the accused mother, stepfather, and grandmother had attempted to dispose of it. I wonder what he told them to, like, encourage them to get rid of the van all of a sudden and not to, like, question why. Yeah. Uh, important to note as well, Kevin Rublet's mother was not at trial. Did not attend the trial. Oh. Mm-hmm. So I agree. I'm curious as well as to what was said to, to make them dispose of that van because his mother did not go to the trial. No, that's like crazy. Yeah. And it definitely implies that there's something up. Yeah. Um, 
And so the audio recording of the interview, um, the interviews, sorry, of Kevin Rublet's like kind of just of his stories changing, like where he first says he just dropped her off, didn't see her go inside, drove home. Then two days later, he says he actually drove to the exact same area where Jessica ended up being found. Like all of these, these initial interviews from when she first went missing are played for the jury. Um, under cross-examination, Kevin Rubletz's defense attorney, Brendan Miller, suggested that Rubletz didn't initially tell the police about the whole interaction with Jessica where she, like, kisses him on the cheek and then he has to go for a drive to clear his head. His defense says that the reason he didn't bring that up in his first interview is because he was at his girlfriend's house when that interview took place. So he didn't want to, like, admit that he had So asked to speak privately. Sure. That's, yeah. Why is this interview taking place in front of his girlfriend anyways? Uh, well, yeah, I said that, like, right at the gates. I was like, that is so unprofessional. Yeah, so his his defense basically says, oh, he couldn't say it because his girlfriend was right there. Kind of whatever. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So for his defense, the they provide an alternate theory that it was actually Kevin Rublitz's mother step and stepfather that killed Jessica. What? So of course they have this theory because they are the ones that disposed of the van. Um, they also say that the AA paperwork that they were a apparently said to be reviewing like Kevin and Jessica were supposed to be reviewing when they were having coffee apparently said paperwork was found inside Jessica's bedroom which the defense stated proved that she went home after their coffee date um for me Maybe that's a, they just each had a copy or like to me that's a stretch because the only person telling us that that paperwork was reviewed was Kevin Rublets himself yeah that paperwork likely wasn't even any part of that night at the end of the day yeah, it's, like, I just feel like that's kind of a He just whole... knew what they were going for court for the next day, that's... so why wouldn't he just use that? Yeah, it's just kind of like, uh, there's holes in that theory for sure. Um, Jessica, I guess, was also found with a, or, like, wearing a hooded sweatshirt that technically belonged to Kevin Rublets's mother. Um, again, like, it could have been in could the truck. Could have been in the van. Or the van, like, it could have just been in the van, so, eh. I still think or that this guy... maybe she gave it to her years ago and it was just a fluke she was wearing it. Maybe it's a hoodie she likes. Like, there's so many yeah. holes in this. Yeah. Well, I, and I guess defense attorney Brendan Miller told the jurors that Kevin Rublets's mother also had issues with Jessica's drinking habits and didn't want her to have 50-50 custody of her grandson. I just, like, with all the evidence and everything I've seen in this case, I just can't buy that it's anybody other than Kevin Rublets that committing this crime so the defense stated that this combined with the evidence um of the van showed that it was reasonable to believe that she and her husband could have been responsible for jessica's death now this is all the defense is trying to do right they don't have to prove that it was somebody else what they have to prove is that it could have been somebody else that there's reasonable doubt enough to think that someone else could have been responsible for this Um, They do not have to prove that they did it. So this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to provide an alternate theory to to make the jury think, well, maybe. Yeah, I don't have to prove that he didn't do it. I just have to prove that someone else could have. 100%. Which is so dumb. Yeah. 
I mean, I get it, but it, it's dumb in this case because clearly, clearly he did it. Yeah. Uh, however, I mean, by the time the defense presented this whole theory, um, the jurors had already been told long before that, sorry, that long before Jessica was found, Kevin, like, literally inserted himself in the same location where she was found. I think that killed him, personally. Like, that that destroyed any chance of him having a defense. Um, yep. Because, again, like I said earlier, this is knowledge that only the killer would know. He literally gave up. And injected it in for no reason. That information before she was even found. And that just, that's it. You're done. You're done. Yeah, you totally put your own foot in your mouth. Again, like I said, Kevin Rubletz's mother did not attend the trial. I probably wouldn't either if my own son was trying to say that I kill that I killed his ex and not him. Bull. Oh, also, November... like, what did his parents have to say back to that accusation? I don't know. Again, it's not like they're necessarily accusing them of doing it. They're not saying, like, go after these people for murder. They're just saying that, like, this could have happened based on this evidence. So I don't really know. I have no idea. But his mother obviously wasn't super supportive of it if she didn't even go to court. Well, that's why I wonder if maybe they she had said ahead of time, like, we are going to say this as our defense. Mm -hmm. So we understand if you can't be in the courtroom. Right. Yeah, it's possible. I'm just, it's so weird. It's wild to me. I thought that was wild, but I mean, it, it like, it makes sense as a defense attorney to present that argument because you have to defend your client in some way. And there is this evidence of the van disposal and things like that. Like they clearly had nothing else. They presented no other defense whatsoever. Um, and they called and one witness. They really witness, went in hard on that one option. They called one witness who like basically was just like eyewitness testimony, which we know is so unreliable to begin with. But it was just essentially this, at best. It was essentially this witness who testified that he believed he saw Jessica on March 11th, would have been the day, which would have been the day after they're alleging that Rublets killed her. Um, wearing the same clothing she was said to have been wearing night before this like guy who's never met jessica before said he was driving to his home in applewood when he spotted a young woman that he believed to be jessica um he said that she stuck out in his mind because she was a quote pretty girl standing on a street corner and because it crossed your mind if you could hire her didn't it like, I don't know. This witness then says, like, it could be credible. I just think that, like, presenting an eyewitness testimony that's not confirmed to be her is also a pretty weak defense. Um, I think they're just trying to confuse people and be like, look over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't basically pay said, to what's happening over here. This person said that a week later after he sees this girl, he spots the missing person poster with Jessica's photo and description and he called crime stoppers but said he didn't feel they were interested he said he also called the calgary police twice they probably weren't they probably weren't he called the calgary police twice more to report what he'd seen but also felt that they weren't interested um and then said when the missing person detective finally returned his call he was told the investigation had taken a different direction um Again, I don't get why anyone says that. Just take the information and rule it out. Yeah. 
Like, don't... I don't know. That it's bothers a, me. It's so. just a... They're just trying to poke a hole, right? And I just think... I mean, we know eyewitness testimony <sighs> on its face is wildly unreliable. And we don't on even know face. if this person that he saw was Jessica. So that's just... Again, they're just trying to poke reasonable doubt in the crime. like that they said that to him. It's taking a different direction. It's like, mm-hmm. well, you've immediately made it sound like his information isn't useful. Yeah. So it does discourage people from coming forward with something later, it I does. think, in other crimes. No, I agree. Okay. So trial ends, and on November 23rd, 2017, Kevin Rubletz is found guilty of secondary murder in the death of Jessica Newman. Uh, nobody is shocked. Rubletz showed no expression while the verdict was read, and while Jessica's family and friends broke down in tears, um, yeah, he just basically sat there. The sentencing hearing was held in March of 2018, and in opening, the Court of Queen's Bench Justice Glenn Pullman, sorry, described the killing as a, quote, savage attack involving almost unbelievable gratuitous violence. Rubletz automatically faced a life sentence with no possibility of parole for a minimum of 10 years for being found guilty of second-degree murder. Um, However, that's a minimum, so we're at sentencing to figure out how long he's going to serve before being eligible for parole. Uh, The prosecution for their side had asked for 17 years, while the defense suggested 12 to 15 years. The defense also asked for a reduction to 10 to 13 years, citing charter breaches while Rubletz was in custody awaiting trial. Um, Brendan Miller argued that Rubletz's charter rights against cruel and unusual treatment were breached at the Calgary Remand Center. He said that Rubletz was beaten after initially being placed in the general population and that he was confined to a 96-square-foot cell with two other people for between 21 and 24 hours a day. Justice Pullman, in delivering his decision, called Rublet's actions cold-blooded and handed down a life sentence with no possibility of parole for 17 years. He did not give a shit that his charter rights were allegedly violated. Nothing much bothers this guy. He's a piece of shit. No, I'm saying the judge didn't care. Oh, I don't think this guy cares, though, either. No. Like, people are upset in the courtroom. There's no response. There's no, no reaction. He's just like, No, he Meh. has no remorse. He, yeah. Mm-hmm. That we can see anyways. Jessica's mother, Rhonda Stewart's victim impact statement, was read to the court by Crown Prosecutor Shane Parker. Um, part of it read, quote, Kevin not only murdered a beautiful soul, a niece, a granddaughter, a cousin, a best friend, a mother, and my daughter, but he stole all the things she had yet to become. He annihilated everything Jessica was and everything she was ever going to be, and in doing this, he shattered those of us who love her. Of her three sons, the statement read, her boys need their mom today and next month and 10 years from now and 25 years from now. Jessica's sons have been dealt in an unfair hand at a very young age. In memory of her daughter, remembered as a kind person who looked for the good in everyone, Rhonda Stewart said she would be doing 25 random acts of kindness before uh, Jessica Newman's 25th birthday, which was on July 22nd, 2015. 
She was hoping that others would be inspired to do the same. Um, and I think we can all just be inspired to do random acts of kindness. It doesn't Better. have to be yeah. um, a certain amount by a certain date, but just, uh, you know, pay just it do forward. do one thing a day that's selfless. Do little random things every day. It'll make you feel good. Rhonda Stewart said, quote, she was kind to a fault. She would have loved this idea. Even if it's just a handful of people who do it, that's a whole lot of goodness. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, Rublets did file an appeal, which was heard in 2020. The appeal was rejected by Alberta's top court before it was even heard. Like, it was like, absolutely not. There's nothing here that would cause you to need a new trial. Um... And I do have just like a random fact that didn't really fit in anywhere when I was writing the case. But at a, at a certain point, um, investigators received an anonymous letter stating that Ryan Chamberlain, so Jessica's like boyfriend at the time that she was murdered, they received this anonymous letter that says that Ryan confessed to the act. Nice try, Mike, sending in this anonymous letter. Not Mike. Kevin. Kevin. Um, oh, yeah, Mike's we, a We like guy. Michael. We like Mike and Ryan. There's just a lot of names. There's a lot of this. names. I get it. Uh, the author four-letter male names. The <laughs> author of this letter has never been identified. But because, So because of this anonymous letter, though, Ryan ended up having to go through the, like, this extensive um, well, that's process why he even again. said, like, I wasn't upset. Like, I'll do whatever I need to. Mm-hmm. Like gets it mm-hmm. but yeah so somebody randomly sent a letter being like ryan did it like okay kevin um and again this author has never been identified last shot in the dark but that that's the tragic and like senseless brutal senseless brutal murder of jessica ray newman um who left behind three beautiful boys and I hope to God this man never gets out. Like seventeen years, just keep the keep the key. I mean, he'll be like in his fifties before he's even Lose eligible it. for parole. But he doesn't deserve to be a father. He doesn't deserve fifty is a lot of life left. Like he doesn't that's... deserve to have a life. No, she was just starting hers. Those and he took three that from kids her. have no mom. Yeah, like she was just starting her life. I remember, like I met you when I was twenty four. Mm-hmm. When I tur- yeah. like when I was 23 is when I moved to the city that we met, and my 24th birthday was around the same time that we met. Yeah, because I remember for your 25th birthday we had a big party and we were all there. Mm-hmm. Like that whole year we were becoming friends. And like if you think about that time of and our I life, I hated you at first. I know she didn't like me, but if you think about that time of our life, like we were just babies babies we were babies and we thought we were grown-ass adults and we knew nothing no and like i look back now and i think about like the jobs that we were doing because we like we were doing some important jobs at that point we were acting like fully fully blown adults and like we were babies until you make it we were babies like thinking about that now we were so young and our lives were just starting and that's exactly where Jessica was at when somebody decided to take that from her. And that's when well, she finally had like this family starting. That's just so sad. It's so sad. I can't I, I can't it. even fathom how sad it is that she was just starting to to really find her traction and 
figure out what she liked and disliked and what she wanted to do. And like that time is just so, it's so special and it's so important and it's so like, it can be really confusing, but like to have somebody just take that from you, I just, it infuriates me. It's so, like you said, it's just, there's no reason. No, there's no reason for it. You didn't help these kids in any way. He wasn't thinking about the kids. No. He didn't give a shit about the kids. Well, that's just it. You weren't thinking about your child. Because if you were, you wouldn't have killed his only mother. Well, and I think all the kids, like, you're stripping the other children of their sibling, their lifestyle, Mm -hmm. their, like, flesh and blood now. Because they probably don't have a relationship with that third child, like Mm -hmm. we've talked about. We don't actually know what the living situation is, but who knows? Yeah. So, anyway, they're all sad. This case was, for me, really sad to research and just so tragic. And my heart goes out to her family and her mom who is raising her children. And Yeah, I hope her kids are okay. And I just hope that her family can somewhat live a normal life moving forward. Yeah. But let's all be inspired by Jessica to be more kind, do random acts of kindness, whether that's a pay it forward or whatever opening you choose to do. Opening the door for someone. Like, opening the door. Like, um, just anything. Like, just be do nice things for people without expecting something in return. Honestly, like, tell the cashier at the grocery store to have a good day. So many people just don't yeah. do that. And they appreciate it so much. The other day I was at Walmart and it was, they were just opening and it was the stat. And there was a guy who was like cussing at them and yelling at them because of the holiday hours. And it was 10 a.m. And then the aisles were still blocked because people steal too much. And he was just going off. Yeah. And just that moment where I could see the cashier was like about to snap. I was just like, I hope you have a really good day. Don't let this bother you. And just acknowledging that she was like, thanks. Yeah. 100%. 100%. Like, it um, didn't take much. It was 10 words, maybe. But it just acknowledged that her day was tough already. Just be fucking nice. Yep. Anyway, that's all for me. Follow us on Instagram. Give us a five-star rating Twitter, review. Facebook threads. Yeah. The whole nine yards. Five-star rating and review on Spotify and Apple if you feel so inclined. And we will see you next week. Okay, bye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. (laughs) Okay.